I would expect that the next administration will give a big push to research and development, therefore innovation, therefore making several key clean energy technologies ready for the markets. My name is Fatih Birol. I am the head of the International Energy Agency in Paris. Thank you. It's great to have you on today. Before we get into a conversation about the clean energy future for the world, I thought I would just ask you a few questions of a more personal nature, just to let the audience know a little bit more about about you. And let me start with a question about you and your position in the IEA. I understand that you're you're the first person who's ever led the IEA after rising through the ranks. Uh, you started, I think, as a young analyst. Um, what, what has that transition been like? Do you, and do you, do you miss being an ordinary staff member? Thank you very much, uh, Bob. You are right. I am the seventh head of the IEA. We are almost uh, 50 years old, the International Energy Agency. Before me, we had uh, distinguished uh, heads of the IEA mainly coming from the capitals of the IEA member countries. And uh, just before me, we had the former economy minister of uh, Netherlands. But I was uh, very fortunate, uh, Bob. I started as a young analyst, as they call it, a number cruncher, doing a very junior work. And I was lucky enough to, after 20 years after I started the IEA, uh, to become the head of the IEA, elected by unanimously by all IEA member uh, countries. And once again, I was re-elected uh, only uh, one year ago and uh, still continuing. I was a young analyst, enthusiastic at that time, 25 years ago. I am uh, still enthusiastic and the head of the IEA and still young, I can say. <laughs> yeah, that, that's great to hear. Did, did, did you always know you wanted to work in energy? I mean, back when you were a student, uh, I think you were an economist by background. And yeah. So as you were studying economics, did, did you have your heart set on energy? I was first, uh, I, I studied both engineering and uh, economics. But in fact, my dream job was uh, being a football player. And uh, I didn't go far uh, there, but I still love uh, football. And then I started to make, after finishing my engineering degree, I started to make some movies. And I was an assistant director of several movies. I shot several short movies uh, myself. But then after uh, having no money, uh, money left, so I started to uh, look at what the other real-world options are. And uh, I ended up being an energy economist. And I am very happy uh, what I am doing now. And, uh, but both football and cinema are uh, great passions for me still. So I know in normal times, you do a lot of uh, traveling. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, in, in the face of COVID-19 and, and the crisis we've been living through globally, what are the biggest personal challenges you've faced uh, because of this uh, lockdown and, and travel restrictions? Now, I, I miss human contact. I think many of us have the same challenge through these webinars, telephone calls, there are also, uh, of course, good supplementary solutions, but I miss human contact to talk with my colleagues, uh, my friends, to have a chat with them, joking with them. 
and uh, without seeing the body language, without having a real contact and not being able to having a, a cup of coffee together or a glass of wine, it is really uh, not uh, so funny, as they say, the, the, the life. I miss it very, very much. More than traveling, the human contact, I miss it uh, very much. I hope that uh, we go back to those days uh, as soon as uh, possible. Of course, I also miss to visit my uh, daughter. She's in Washington, D.C., so this is I cannot uh, fly over there. And uh, my mom, who is in Istanbul, uh, I cannot visit her as well. These are uh, big challenges. Yeah, our, our viewers can't, uh, our listeners can't see it, but it looks like you're in your office uh, yes. at, at the IEA. Are, are there many others uh, in the office? Or is the IEA getting back to to normal now? Uh, not yet. I mean, almost, I would say 95% of the colleagues are working from home, but I come to office, uh, a few colleagues' company, uh, uh, me uh, just uh, some institutional uh, issues to look after them. I feel uh, more at home in the office than I am at home, to be honest with you, because I spend a lot of time uh, here. And I have a very nice office. I am very fortunate, uh, Bob. I have a very nice view of Paris. It's a beautiful city, Paris, uh, as you know. So therefore, uh, most of us are, uh, I talk with my colleagues all the time. They're also looking forward to come to office and have our normal uh, life in the office, hopefully sometime soon. Now, I know one of your great strengths, and, and you have many great strengths, uh, but one of them is, is is that you seem to be an eternal optimist. And one of those aspects is that you seem very optimistic about the world's clean energy future in spite of uh, the COVID-19 crisis uh, we're going through right now. Could you tell us a little bit about what underpins your optimism? A few uh, reasons. Uh, one of them is, as you know, Bob, I work with the governments around the world closely every day with talking with the Minister of India or Canada or, or Japan or uh, UK. I feel, I feel, after so many years, I feel that there is a growing political momentum. And this political momentum, uh, with also the recent developments uh, in your country, uh, Bob, I think it will give a very strong signal to investors where the direction is, where the future of energy is. This is the first reason why I'm optimistic. The second reason is uh, that the uh, several uh, technologies, especially renewable technologies, are becoming cheaper and cheaper. And it is, uh, they are uh, cost-effective. Ten years ago, solar was a romantic story. It is not anymore a romantic story. It is becoming, the, in terms of investments, it's a very lucrative investment opportunity in terms of energy. So is wind. I expect offshore wind also will go down. The costs will go down uh, soon. So this is the second. And third, there are uh, technologies which are not ready for the market, but there is a lot of momentum for these technologies, ranging from carbon capture and, and storage to uh, hydrogen, from hydrogen to batteries. I see that uh, there is a momentum coming for those technologies uh, as well. At different stages, it is not for the governments, but uh, I have a, another hat, uh, Bob. I am the 
chair of the Davos World Economic Forum on uh, Energy, and I talk with the uh, business leaders, uh, I see that the many uh, companies are positioning themselves for the next clean energy technology to come, and their portfolios are uh, redesigned. So putting these three things together, growing political uh, momentum, uh, getting cheaper uh, renewable and other technologies, mature technologies, and and uh, seeing a lot of strong signs for the technologies that we need badly in the next years to come, but not uh, ready for the markets. All of these three things together make me uh, rather optimistic. That that's great. So alongside of those those positive trends, what are some of the big challenges that we're going to need to overcome to get to uh, a clean energy future? I think for me the uh, biggest challenge is that the world, especially advanced economies, do not get yet that the biggest part of the efforts need to take place in the emerging world. Because uh, the big part of the emissions will come from Asia, will come from uh, Latin America, Africa, where the clean energy investments need to take place. And when I look at those uh, countries, there are serious investment risks now, and the, neither the monetary nor the financial uh, options are there to respond to the, those risks. And I am uh, rather cautious to be optimistic about the developments in the emerging countries. Because as we all know, Bob, I'm sure you know much better than me, one ton of emissions going to atmosphere from California or from Jakarta or uh, from Paris or from Johannesburg, it has the same effect on everybody. So uh, therefore, uh, it is, uh, we need a global effort there and I'm worried that uh, those efforts may not be as strong as we would like to see from the emerging world. So therefore, I made in the IEA a priority of our efforts are going to accelerate the clean energy transitions in the emerging world. So it, as you look ahead, are, are there chances to, to put together coalitions that can help us go faster? So how, how do we bring the developed world together with developing countries? to make this faster? Yes, this is very important. And we know that uh, today, more and more countries around the world come up with some pledges to having a net zero for 2050. So Europe has started, UK came on board, Korea, uh, Japan, China came up with a plan as well. Canada, uh, maybe soon, uh, United States. Now, they are building an architecture, as they call it, the climate policy architecture. But what I would like to see is that the, in order to reach those emission reductions, I would like to see which credible energy policies will be put in place so that we can uh, achieve those reductions. For example, Japan. I was just talking with the Japanese minister. So Japan is a 2050 emission target, 2050 net zero emission target. So I would like to know offshore wind, for example, Japan is a very important uh, option for Japan, how much offshore wind will be deployed in Japan to reach those targets and 
what kind of fiscal incentives, regulatory uh, designs will be made in order to Japan to accelerate the offshore wind deployment so that we reach there. I need, we need to know what kind of energy policies, credible energy policies will put in place. And as I always say, there are a lot of architects, architecture of, uh, they talk about the climate change. I think there is a need for engineers uh, here, in addition to architects, in order to see what kind of real energy policies will be put in place. This is my preoccupation, and we are trying to bring a group of uh, governments, business leaders, financial institutions together in order to accelerate the clean energy uh, transitions. Sando, one of the things you've done as executive director of the IEA has been to bring more emerging economies into the fold. Has that been driven by your realization that, that we have to get these countries involved in climate change in order to, to meet climate goals for 2050 and beyond? Exactly. Because when I took office, the IEA countries' share in the global energy consumption was uh, about 40%. And in the last five years, we had China, India, Indonesia, South Africa, Mexico, uh, eight, nine countries are now part of the IEA uh, family because the, the action, if I may say so, is there. The uh, energy demand growth is there, investments are going there, emissions are coming from there. Without engaging with them, without working with them, we have no chance whatsoever to reach our energy and climate goals. It is the reason I came up with a strategy at that time. I call it opening the doors of the IEA to emerging world. We opened the doors and the, a few years ago, IEA was called as the rich man's energy club. And uh, I am happy that uh, nobody calls us anymore uh, uh, that way, and they call us now Global Energy Authority, which I really prefer. Yeah. Now, I, I think that was uh, very uh, foresighted to, to bring in these these developing economies, because I, I agree completely. completely and, and, and Bob, if I may, I got the support of many ministers of the uh, IEA countries at that time, one of the strongest support came uh, one of your fellow uh, colleagues, uh, uh, Secretary Moniz, uh, who, who was the Secretary of Energy of the United States at that time. And uh, I get a lot of support uh, from him. I just wanted to mention this as uh, uh, I talk with the uh, MIT now. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. He, he, he's, a, he's a great colleague. And of course, he was a great Secretary of, of Energy. Exactly. Uh, you've, you've talked on a n number of key technologies. You, you, you mentioned solar and how that's expanded and has become a cornerstone of, of decarbonization. You talked about wind, uh, both onshore and offshore. To go with that, uh, we're going to need a lot of infrastructure to tie it together, to move energy from where we have wind resources or solar resources to, to where demand is is greatest. And, and, and I wonder if I could get your thoughts on what are some of the big infrastructure challenges uh, and, and how that varies around the world uh, between developed and, and developing countries. So there are, of course, several challenges, but if I have to pick up one. So when I look at the, uh, the trends, I see at least two important trends which can justify uh, the point I choose. One of them is the renewables are growing. 
And the second one is maybe a much uh, broader trend. The electricity is future. Electricity is going very, very strongly, and not only in terms of the lighting or the industry, it is going beyond that. It will go to transportation sector soon, and uh, maybe uh, later on heating homes and uh, many things around the world. Now, when I look at these two things, I think one issue that we don't talk much in the energy world, which is critical for me, is the laying down and strengthening the grids, electricity grids around the world. So grids, having smart grids and the linking the consuming and producing, uh, energy consuming, energy producing regions of a country or between the countries building those power grids will be important, including the United States. I mean, you, how do you bring the uh, sunshine from uh, one part of the United States to the other part of the United States is a key issue. Therefore, building grids, not only in the United States, but within Europe, in Asia, uh, will be critical. I think if I have to pinpoint one key infrastructure challenge, it is the uh, grids, which uh, unfortunately doesn't enjoy a lot of attention from the policymakers uh, around the world. Let me go back to the brief remarks you made about uh, Secretary Moniz and, and working with him back in the Obama administration. Uh, we have a new administration coming in uh, in January in, in the U.S. I'm curious uh, about your thoughts on how you might want to work with the new administration as the IEA, and what do you see as opportunities? So for a moment, I was scared that you'll ask me who will be the next Secretary of Energy in the United States, which I have no clue, of course. But what is my expectation from the uh, next U.S. administration is the uh, following. First of all, if the next administration implements uh, what they said before the election, namely pushing the climate agenda strongly together with the energy security, I would expect that this will give a tremendous political momentum around the world. It will affect the investors in Japan. It will affect uh, the decisions uh, uh, made in uh, Jakarta. It will affect everything. So this political momentum creation. This is number one. Number two, I would expect another thing, which is our numbers show that I mean, we all talk about the reduction of emissions to reach net zero in 2050, big emission reductions. Our numbers show that 50% of those reductions will need to come from technologies which are not ready for the market today. So we have, of course, solar, we have, of course, uh, wind, we have efficiency and so on, but 50% need to come from technologies which are not ready for the market. So uh, which means the, uh, the magic word for me here is innovation. And when I think of the innovation and clean energy, energy technology innovation, United States has been the undisputed leader years and years. Now, I would expect that the next administration will give a big push to research and development, therefore innovation, therefore making several key clean energy technologies ready for the markets. 
I mean, hydrogen. When I look at the, again the solar, how the solar costs went down, it happened because many governments gave a push in the beginning. And uh, here, uh, you see the uh, US leadership in hydrogen, carbon capture and uh, storage. I don't know, maybe small model reactors. Uh, this will all uh, help. And uh, therefore, this is the second area I uh, would expect. And uh, thirdly, I hope we will have a Secretary of Energy from United States coming to uh, IEA ministerial meeting and uh, saying nice things about the, how important the international energy cooperation is, that we all need to work together. No country is an energy island. We have things to learn from each other. We have things to share with each other. And I really hope uh, to meet that uh, Secretary of Energy uh, sometime soon. Well, well, it's good to see you You keep your optimism uh, <laughs> and that this yes. refocus on innovation. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the Paris Agreement uh, where mission innovation was one of the, the major uh, themes there and the commitment by, I think, 20 countries to, to increase their spending on basic uh, or fundamental uh, energy research. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I think the U.S. has continued to do fundamental research in energy and increase that, that spending. Um, but I think, as you point out, we need to move that, those innovations and, and those fundamental science discoveries into the marketplace where they can be deployed to actually reduce emissions. CCUS is, is one of the technologies you have mentioned. That, that's a technology that we've had in place in the sense that we know how to do it. It obviously costs more to capture CO2 and sequester it than it does to emit it. Um, that suggests that we might need a, well, we likely do need a, a price on, on carbon. Um, do, do you see opportunities there globally for some, some way to price carbon, uh, whether it's a price itself or a, a cap and trade system? In some parts of in Europe, there is already price on carbon. In some parts of the uh, world, there are uh, such applications. But uh, to see an international carbon price in order to not have a leakage uh, there seems to be very efficient, but politically very, very difficult. So therefore, I would again uh, look at the uh, governments to find different ways. For example, 45Q, the tax credits, is a very good move from the United States. Norwegian government, UK government are putting a lot of efforts on the uh, CCUS. In my view, uh, Bob, I have no love or uh, liking any technology. I have the same arm length to all of them. But when I look at the numbers, in the absence of CCUS, to reach our climate goals in 2050 will be all but impossible because of the legacy issue we have, the lock-in infrastructure we have. Looking at what is happening in Asia, today coal is still 38% of the global power generation. Cement industry, iron, steel, all of them, they require a technology such as CCS. And this is a very important technology. And I know that from the announcements before the election, the next administration made uh, clear that CCS will be one of the key technologies they will look uh, carefully, which is a, a great hope for all of us. Good. Well, those are very uh, 
interesting and helpful thoughts. It's always good to talk to you, Fatih, because of your optimism and, and, and because of the extraordinary breadth of your understanding of, of the global energy system coming out of your work with, with so many countries uh, around the world. So I, I thank you once again for, for sharing your insights with us. Uh, and, and I look to have you visit us at MIT when travel bans are, are uh, lifted and, and you can start to move around the world again. Because I, I certainly share your loss of, of human contact. Uh, I, I think that's an important piece we want back. Yes, I thank you very much, Bob, for this opportunity. And it will be a great honor and the pleasure to come over once again to MIT to see you, to see other colleagues, and to talk and discuss with your students and your colleagues. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. <laughs>